listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I want to begin just by asking how many of us have had those times when the question why is just weighing heavily on your heart and on your mind. Why me? Why now? Why this? Why this circumstance? Why did this not work out like I thought it was going to? Why must I endure this struggle? Why? We've all been there. We may be there now. I don't think that any of us who believe in a Creator God have not asked the question many, many times, why would God allow this right now? And so for those times... Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 is a very profound passage for us. For the question of why this, why now, why here, why me? There's four things that I want us to see in the passage. All four of those things are going to relate to two overarching principles that I think these first seven verses speak to us. And those two principles are the sovereignty of God and the humility of God. Both of those concepts in many ways, seem almost contradictory to us. But both of those concepts come through very loud and very clear in the first seven verses. The sovereignty of God and the humility of God. And so to see that, the first thing I want to point out to us is the timing of Jesus' birth. If we remember here, the passage is speaking to us about a time that was not exactly a high water mark for Israel. If God had said to His people, I will send Messiah at the time in which my people are the strongest, at the most peace, are the most successful, then it would not have been now. Israel's high water mark came and went a thousand years prior to this. Back when David was on the throne and Solomon followed him and that was a time of a lot of war, a lot of victory in war, a lot of victory over their enemies, followed by a a time of extended peace and incredible prosperity. Israel was the most powerful nation on the planet. They were well respected. They were receiving tribute from all kinds of foreign nations. There had never been a peace like this in their history and never to be again. However, all of that came to an end, of course, as their sin brought about the exile. And never again would ancient Israel ever rule itself. 
they would be, from that time forward, ruled by pagans, unbelievers, foreign nations. And ownership or rule of Israel has passed from one pagan nation to another. To this point now, they are ruled by Rome. Now the most powerful empire on the earth, thoroughly pagan, thoroughly polytheistic. They don't even believe in one God. And to truth be known, they don't even believe in any gods. They rule with an iron fist. And this is what could easily be, easily be said a low point in Israel's history. This was a time in which those who were proud of their nation and proud of the history of their nation had very little to be proud of now. This was a time in which those who feared God and were grieved by the name of God being scorned, this was a time in which they had to look far and, and hard in order to find encouraging things going on. Because this was a time in which God's name was op op openly scorned. This was a time in which those who, who believed and were, were God followers and true converts of, of the Lord, this was a time in which uh, their voices had been silenced. This was a time in which those who were willing to compromise with pagan governments were experiencing success and advancement in life. This was not a high watermark for the church. And this is the time in which God decides this is now when Messiah comes. There's a number of parallels that we can draw between this point in ancient Israel's history and our point today. We also are experiencing a time in which we can say, at least speaking from our faith, that in, in, in some ways our high watermark has come and gone. And this is a time in which we see a great deal of compromise with those who claim the faith, those who claim to love God and love the church. This is a time in which we see those who are willing to compromise are being advanced and are, are prospering. And so just a note there for us as we begin. God's actions are almost, are all, almost always most evident, most powerful, most clear when they're a surprise. When God's people are not feeling very proud, are not feeling very confident, are not feeling very high in themselves, but instead are debased and humbled. God seems to act in those times. And so there's some parallels that we can draw here. We remember the story of Jesus in the boat. And the disciples are in this storm and they cry out for, for help and for mercy. They have reached the end of their rope. They're overcome by fear. The storm is battering them. And it's at that moment that Jesus acts. So the sovereignty of God, the timing of God in Jesus' birth here. The second thing I want you to see is the, the, the unknowing participants in the birth of Jesus. Now we know that it is prophesied in the Scriptures that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. However, Mary and Joseph, of course, reside in Nazareth. And so, in order to fulfill the prophecies, by the time Jesus is born, Mary has to be relocated to Bethlehem. In today's time, that would be something of no real consequence. Just pick up, hop in the car, hop on a bus, go from Nazareth over to Bethlehem, not a big deal. However, in this day, this, this was not a time in which people moved around, moved around a lot. This was not a time in which people were mobile. This was not a time in which someone traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem would be a common type of occurrence. 
Um, and so God needs to get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the birth here. And let's just notice what he does in order to do that. Luke says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So in order for God to get Mary to Bethlehem, God uses a pagan Roman Caesar who doesn't know him, doesn't care to know him, in order to bring about a seemingly worldwide, not literally worldwide, but far-reaching registration or census or taxing. And thousands of people must leave their, their place of residence and move, or not move, but travel to their hometowns in order to be registered. Now this was certainly not the first registration, not the first taxing, or not the first census that the ancient world performed. But it was not normal for people in this day to move or to travel to their hometown in order to be registered or to be taxed. It had occurred a couple of times before, but it, this was definitely not the normal thing to do. So God now says, in order for, Bethle, for, in order for Bethlehem to now be the place of birth for Messiah, God uses this pagan Caesar, this pagan ruler, and he puts in the hearts of of him or his advisors or someone around him to say, let's have a registration in which everybody goes to their hometown to be registered. Well, wouldn't that be a whole lot of trouble for a whole lot of people? Yeah, but let's do it that way. And so they have literally thousands of people that are moving around in order to go to their hometown. The, the logistics of the thing must have been incredible, but this is what God goes to, the length that he goes to, in order to take Mary from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the birth. We know that the Scriptures teach us, of course, that God rules over nations. God rules over kings. He rules over kingdoms. We remember the Scripture from Daniel chapter 2 that it is God that removes kings and sets up kings. But let's just take a moment to marvel at just the absolute control that God has over His world when He desires to exercise that. It is no <coughs> roadblock for God that Mary is not in Bethlehem. It's no roadblock for Him to get her into Bethlehem. He just simply uses the Caesar in order to do that. So the unknowing participant of Caesar um, probably never had any idea that he was being used by God. Never had any clue that that what he was doing was all fitting into the, into the plan of God. So notice the unknowing participants in Jesus' birth. But also let's notice the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Let's read once again from verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So, the innkeeper, of course, has long been the source of, or the object of our ridicule. How could he not make room for them in the inn? What a selfish, ridiculous innkeeper he must have been. But, um, we don't know how many other people he perhaps turned away 
There was probably only one inn in the town of Bethlehem at this time. And so he at least makes a way for her to be sheltered with supposedly the animals. Notice there's no stable. We always sort of have, you know, the, your nativity set that you have at home that has a stable. Well, the scriptures, as you notice, say nothing about a stable. They do mention a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. So we assume that this was in, a vicinity, in the vicinity of animals, livestock probably. <clears throat> so perhaps it wasn't a stable, but more likely, <clears throat> inns in those days were, were set up, of course, to house travelers. And people of those days traveled with animals. And so inns would typically have a second floor that housed people, and the first floor would be used to house the animals that those people came in. And so, more than likely, the space that Mary was given was the space on the first floor where the animals were staying, instead of the second floor, which was full, full to capacity, where the humans were staying, where the people were staying. So she's here, probably in the first floor underneath the inn. Space has been provided for her, and she, she brings forth, she gives birth to her firstborn son. Those who are parents in the room, we can remember that moment when your first child was born your only child if you have one, but your first child, and you remember what a special, profound moment that was in your life. And you think of how that moment would have been to have taken place in the place of livestock. In, in, in the place where livestock are stored. We have this romantic 21st century picture of how this must have must have been, you know, every year we get the Christmas cards, and they'll have a nice little manger on the front of the Christmas card, and it's all neat, and, and it's just the right size for a, a newborn baby. You ever notice that it's just the right dimensions for a newborn baby? And it'll have nice clean straw that's neatly laid in there and sort of spilling over. Or you'll read the children's books, and and it'll have a, a, a depiction of the perfectly sized little manger again with this clean little sleeping newborn lying in there and animals sort of gathered around in this peaceful, worshipful look. And, they, and the yeah. animals are even smiling. Yeah. I've been through those drive-by nativities. I know what they look like. <laughs> <laughs> A really sanitized, romanticized picture of what this night would have been. But this was in the vicinity of livestock. Clean a barn one time, you know. Clean a barn one time. (laughs) Care for large animals one time. And you know that large animals are disgusting. Chickens aren't so good. Small animals can be also, but (laughs) livestock are not clean animals. They um, are filthy, they are smelly, they are dirty. They, um, <laughs> some of them taste good. This is good, so I got it all on a horse after this. <laughs> and this is the place in which Messiah experiences, in many ways, the, the most special moment of his earthly life. Isn't that, in a sense, the sort of the grandest moment of our life, in a way? Is our birth are entering into the world. You remember what, how you 
as you um, were experiencing the birth of your children, how you just wanted that to be right, and you wanted it to be special, and you wanted, you know, the family to come by, and even though you had just uh, come out of labor, you know, you looked right, and your makeup was all right, and your hair was fixed up nice and everything, and the baby was nice and clean, you wanted that to be just a special moment. The most special moment for the Messiah was, it took place in the filthiest of places. And the Messiah could not even be born where humans stayed. He, he was born where animals stayed. And what this shows us, I think, very clearly is the humility of God or the humbling of God or the self-abasing of God. Those are phrases that if you never really sort of turn those phrases over in your heart, the humility or let me use another word, the humiliation of God. Those are accurate phrases, not typically the ones that we think of when we think of the majesty of the Creator. But this is the humiliation of the Messiah, the abasing, the self-abasing. Because make no mistake, this is God that's orchestrating this. It is God, the Father, who has said, this is how my Son will be born. Do we think for one instant that God can arrange the population rearrange the population of, of Palestine and use the Roman Caesar to, to move Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem and he can't manage to take care of hotel reservations. It's absurd to think that God can orchestrate this, but He can't manage to find a place for Mary to stay. So it is His plan that Messiah will come forth in the most a based way that he can, and in the most humble way possible, to show the character of God. Because the character of God is not a proud character. It's a humble character. It's a character of humility. Jesus, in a real sense, is taking on himself the humiliation that is due us, the humiliation that is due to sinners who deserve such circumstances. He, having never sinned, deserves none of this, but instead he takes on the humiliation that is due to us. And he comes forth to show us in this way of the most humble character possible. We know how the Scriptures teach us of God's thoughts of, of pride. The scripture says repeatedly that God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the proud, not because he has decided in heaven someplace that pride is going to be a, a character trait that, that I just don't like. And so I'm going to tell people not to be proud people. God is opposed to the proud because he is not proud. He favors the humble because he is humble. You know what pride says? Pride says, I'm going to get my own. I'm going to get mine. Whether it's things or stuff or recognition or position or honor, pride says, I'm going to get my own. Humility says, 
I'm going to make sure others get their own. Humiliation says, I will forego my own so that others may receive their own. Had the innkeeper kicked someone out of their room, then someone would have gone without in order for Jesus to have been born with. Scriptures teach us, of course, Paul's words to the Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, he made himself nothing. He doesn't say, I'm going to get my own, my own recognition, my own honor. Instead, the Father says, we will go out of our way to abase ourselves. So we see so very clearly the humiliation, the self-abasing of Jesus in His birth. But then lastly, and I think this is the most profound point of of the passage this morning, we see the power in God's weakness. We see the power of God's weakness. Now, Again, the passage is extraordinarily familiar to us. And I think in its familiarity, there is at least one thing that's easy to lose sight of. And what's easy to lose sight of in chapter 2 is chapter 1. In chapter 1, Mary has some things said to her. In chapter 2, Mary has we have the implication that some things are said to Mary. In chapter 1, some of the things that are said to Mary are, Blessed are you among women. O favored one of God. In chapter 2, the implication is that what is said to Mary is, there's no room for you here. You can go where the animals are. And I think if we lose the connection between those two things, we miss some of the contradiction that God wants us to see. Some of the dichotomy that exists between chapter 1 and chapter 2. As God, through the angel Gabriel, says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. There has never been, nor will there ever be, another like you who is the recipient of such grace from God as to be the mother of the Messiah. And then in chapter 2, the mother of the Messiah, the favored one of God, hears the words, There's some hay and some straw over there. You can go and you can give birth where the animals give birth. Now the contradiction that once we see that leaps off the page at us is the contradiction between God speaking words to Mary to say, here's my promise to you. You are the recipient of grace from me. And then, the circumstance of Mary's life says to her the complete opposite of what Gabriel spoke to her in chapter 1. Her circumstances say to her, this is not good, and so therefore God is not good. My circumstance is unfavorable. Therefore, my God is unfavorable. You see how the circumstance is screaming to her the exact opposite 
of what the angel said to her in chapter 1. And so the challenge that Mary faces, and I know that this is I know that this is a unique situation. This is unique in the redemption history. This is the birth of Messiah. God is arranging all of this for redemptive purposes. I know all of that. But at the same time, we also see something in what Mary faces that is true in our life. Because what Mary faces is she faces the challenge of faith. Will she believe what the angel has said? Or will she believe what her eyes tell her? Will she believe what the angel has told her about the promise, the favor, and the blessing of God? Or will she believe the innkeeper who says to her, your place is with the animals? And so she's faced with two things. Which one will she believe? Isn't it true that, that, that this is how our lives are more often than not? Isn't it true that more often than not, we know the promises of God. We know what He says to us in His Word. We know how He promises us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are safe in the love of Jesus Christ. What can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ? We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We know that the Scriptures promise us all those things and more. And then our life will tell us something different, something opposite. And isn't it true that more often than not, what we see in our life negates what God has told us in His Word, overrides what God has told us in His Word, or, if nothing else, at least dampens or mutes or causes us to forget what God has told us in His Word because our circumstance says to us, to us something that's different than what God's Word has told us. Isn't that often true? That God's Word will say to us, you are a child of the King. And then we'll hear the words, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Or God's Word will say to us that you and the love of Jesus Christ are inseparable. That you are the object of the maximum love that Jesus Christ has for you. And then the circumstances of our life will say, I'm sorry, we need to lay you off. Or I'm sorry, that job position is not going to come through for you. Or I'm sorry, I know that we said we would pay for the best. But we won't. And so what we're faced with are two things that say opposites to us. And it is so often that life tempts us to believe based on circumstances that our God is not good, that we are not His objects of favor. Isn't, wasn't that true with Job? Wasn't that the challenge of faith that Job faced? Which one will I believe? And despite what the Sunday school lessons often teach us, Job did not pass that test with flying colors. Or isn't that what Jesus Himself faced? You remember in the beginning of the Gospels as Jesus is baptized and He comes up out of the water and the voice from heaven speaks and says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we go from that to this. If you are the Son of God, then why are you in this circumstance? And so Jesus faces exactly what we face. 
In God's economy, there are two realities. There is the reality of faith, and there is the reality of what our eyes teach us. And I think Mary's example stands for us as the preeminent example of one who is given assurance from God of one thing, and her circumstances say to her another, and she must take the test of faith. Which one will she believe? You ever have those times where you just want to scream out and say, I just wish God would send me an angel. Would just send me an angel. If He would send me an angel, then nothing after the, just send me an angel and assure me of His love, of His presence, of His existence, then everything will be okay. Mary was sent an angel. And yet she still faces the same test that you and I face. The same test of faith. Which one will I believe to be true? There is one particular passage in Scripture that I think is enormous, enormously helpful for us to think through such a thing as this. And of course, it's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 through 18. Here we read the words of Paul when he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Paul just finished a lengthy section talking about the suffering of himself and the suffering of God's people. And he sort of wraps all that up by saying, We're afflicted in every way. But our affliction is not like others' affliction. We're afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We suffer. In fact, Paul is saying, we seem to suffer more than others. We seem to have this cloud of suffering that is forever with us as God's people. But our suffering is different. It afflicts us, but it does not crush us. And then he goes on to say that we're always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, we are experiencing this life of suffering, but it has purpose to it. And the purpose is so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. How? Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. In other words, we suffer, we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. Why? Because we have this thing called faith that causes us to believe not what we see crushing us, but what we know to be true based on God's Word, what has been written. So therefore, we don't lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's what Paul just said to us. Paul just said that our suffering, when we suffer with faith, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. In other words, in other words, we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we'll never have again. We have the only opportunity now in this life to please God by faith. The Scriptures teach us in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. In this life, God has deemed He is pleased by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And so this life is the only opportunity we will ever have to experience affliction, suffering, trials with faith. At the end of this life, faith is over. 
Everything that we have faith in now will be seen. And there will be no more faith. And so this short blip, this short little speck of time that is our life, is our opportunity to exercise faith in what we have been told to be true that may or may not appear to correlate with what we see in our circumstances. Our circumstances will lie to us. Your situation will lie to you. Your situation will tell you that God is not good, that He does not care. Sometimes your situation may even tell you that God is is getting a kick out of your suffering. But your situation will lie to you, just as Job's situation lied to him. And so this is the only opportunity you will ever have to exercise faith in the midst of that and say, this is what I know to be true, and I will believe what I know to be true, and I will be suspicious of my circumstances. God desires for us to have a faith that is of such a character and such a nature that it is stronger than our circumstance. A faith that is stronger than our circumstance. A faith that has the ability to negate a circumstance instead of the other way around. And so one thing that that we often say, I think J.D. Greer was the first person I heard to say this, But this is a good thing to take with you in all of life. Always judge the love of God, not by your circumstances. Always judge the measure of His love by the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only measurement that will accurately show to you the love of Jesus for you. Your situation won't do it. Your circumstance won't do it. Even when you get the new job, even when things are going great, even when your life is full of blessing, even that is not a measurement of Jesus' love for you. Only the cross is a true measurement of His love for you. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.